Hello and welcome to the Living a Culture of Life podcast by Human Life International. I'm your host, Colleen Haupt, and I'm joined today by Amanda Ackman, who's joining us from Rome. Hello, Amanda. Welcome. Hi, Colleen. Great to be with you. It's so great to be with you, too. And today we're going to be talking about the importance of being familiar with death as as pro-lifers. So, Amanda, let's just start with that. How did you come to focus on death as a pro-life young person? Sure. Well, my early experience of death was actually the death of my younger brother. I had a baby brother when I was just two years old, and this baby brother died quite young at only seven months old. His name was Brandon Joseph, and uh, he was born very, very premature. His kidneys didn't really work. And um, so he was alive mostly in the hospital uh, for those seven months. And um, I don't really remember his funeral, but I feel like I do because we have home video of it. We have home video of the funeral and also of a day in his life at the hospital. My parents were always recording um, videos so that I would get to know him in a certain sense. And uh, that's how I could feel uh, a connection to him and and in a sense, get to know Brandon. So uh, what I learned by my interest in my brother's life is that he touched a lot of lives. He touched the lives of the nurses and the doctors. He touched the lives of all the people who are in that funeral video, all of my relatives. And that was an early point of realizing that our lives are not always about what we accomplish, but what God accomplishes in and through us. And that's a very important lesson for all of us to have, that that our dignity comes not only from what we do in this life, but from the simple ability to love and be loved. So Brandon made a big impact on me. And at the time, my mom couldn't really find a way to uh, commemorate his life as a preemie. There were scrapbooks and baby books for babies who were reaching the ordinary milestones. But for preemies, they don't have all of the same milestones as other babies who are developing along the natural normal timeline. So she created a special care baby book And this was actually a a small business. She sold these and they were available in the hospital so that mothers of preemies could, with their families, scrapbook and document the milestones of their their little ones, however short those lives might have been. And so growing up in my family, we had a big tradition of celebrating his birthday into earth and his birthday into heaven. And this shaped me really, the fact that every time twice a year, we had birthday cake, not just once. This gave me a sensitivity of um, really cherishing his place in our family life and realizing the value of this other family member who, even though his life was short, continued to transform and influence my family life and still does. We even had a little handprint of his made on a plaque, like a, a handprint that was made Um, and we have them for me and my other younger brother too. And so we also include this, this plaque that has the handprint in our family photos when we take family photos over the years. So the presence of Brandon in in our life, um, and I also could see his development. He was born so premature. He weighed only three pounds, seven ounces. I remember that because when I was born, I weighed seven pounds, three ounces. And so it was so small and um i could see as a young person that um, this is the stage at which some babies could have been aborted uh, the age at which he was born premature 
And so this gave me a great sensitivity because I couldn't imagine my life without my brother, Brandon. Uh, I really cherish him. So this is one aspect in which I began to think about death from quite a young age and to have a sensitivity to it. Yeah, that's, that's really, I can see how that'd be really powerful. And then you, I think you mentioned you had a, your grandfather too was influential, right? Can you jump into that? Yeah, so my grandfather, who I called Zeta, which is a Yiddish word for, for grandfather, he was a Polish Jew. He came to Canada in 1937, my dad's dad. And one of the greatest gifts of my life was when he moved in with us. So my grandmother uh, passed away. And at that point, my grandfather moved in with us. He was 89 years old, and he lived with us for seven years until he was 96. And so he was in our family home for those several years that I was in high school and in my early university years. And having a grandparent in the home was so pivotal and such a gift. Really, uh, I've heard it said that the best gift you can give your child is a sibling. And I would say the other best gift you can give your child is a grandparent in the home or lots of contact with the grandparent. And so I was really close with him. He challenged me a lot. He challenged me to confront the history of the Holocaust and to face up to all of the difficult questions that that raises. And I was interested in the history of the Holocaust, the stories of survivors. Um, these stories from a young age captivated me. And I was really taken by the stories of uh, resilience. So, um, and all the ultimate questions that come into to play. So then when I was 18, I traveled on a Holocaust study trip to Germany and Poland with 60 students from all across Canada and two Holocaust survivors. And it was on that trip that I learned that dehumanization is at the core of genocide. And I started to think if dehumanization is at the core of genocide, then what does it mean to humanize humanity? And I tried to find examples of people who, who really humanized humanity. And that's what really led me to study John Paul II. I moved to Poland and I started studying John Paul II for a couple of years. Right around the time that I decided to move to Poland was the time that the government of Canada started, started legalizing euthanasia. Now you can imagine, given the uh, influence of my grandfather who lived a very long uh, life and who came to Canada fleeing Poland, thanks be to God, uh, in 1937, how sensitive I was to the government uh, legalizing euthanasia, which initially was particularly targeting grandparents, targeting the elderly. So when I was studying John Paul II in Poland, I don't think there was a day that went by that I wasn't praying for the elderly in Canada and praying for a greater reverence for life and that people would have an occasion to get to see the value that others might not be able to see. John Paul II has a beautiful line in a letter that he wrote to a friend where he said, the important thing is to see the values that others don't see and to affirm them, because in this way we bring out these values in ourselves and in others. And I felt like I had this ability to see the value of the elderly. And if only people could have experiences with those who are old, they too would be cha changed by these relationships. So as I said, every day in Poland, I was thinking about this issue as I studied the life and thought of John Paul II. 
then to my surprise, when I returned to Canada in God's providence, I started working in, uh, in the parliament with a member of parliament and the government was trying to go even further. Now euthanasia was not only for those with grievous and irremediable conditions, but the liberal government was trying to expand euthanasia to those for whom a disability or a mental illness was the sole condition. And particularly given my Holocaust education, my sensitivity to the history of euthanasia and eugenics in that period, I saw this as a massive warning sign of a culture headed toward crisis and dehumanization because the measure of a society is how we treat the most vulnerable. And eventually we are all vulnerable. We're all on a scale of disability in this life. We're all, uh, we're all vulnerable and weak in certain ways and in need of care and affection and tenderness. And euthanasia is so detrimental to the trust that we can normally have within a society. So that's when I started working with this member of parliament to try and prevent the expansion of euthanasia on the basis of disability and mental illness. And um, in our original conversation, you'd mentioned that you saw being familiar with death as an anecdote to the culture of life or culture of death. So can you just explain why you thought that or how you ended up with that uh, perception? Yeah. So when I was working in the office of this MP, we put out a call for stories and we said in order to oppose this expansion of euthanasia on the basis of disability and mental illness, please send in your stories and share with us how this will affect you and your loved ones. And we received in just a few days, hundreds upon hundreds of stories. And it seemed like our political office was becoming like a crisis office. This really affected me. The stories really hit me. And I could see a, a serious inability to contend with the mystery of suffering. I could see the extent of the loneliness, especially amidst the pandemic, but not only. And I could see a complete lack of preparedness to uh, face up to and accept the reality of death. Um, there's kind of two extremes, euthanasia on the one hand and the kind of transhumanist conceit on the other. And at every turn, it seemed like we were veering toward one or the other of these extremes. And so I was quite perplexed and I was thinking about how John Paul II had talked about the culture of death. And that's when it kind of occurred to me that I don't even think we so much have a culture of death, though I know what he means by that, as we have, a, a, as we have death without culture. We are seeing death and dying really outside of its cultural context, outside of its context of communities and families and faith. And that certainly will make death and dying a lot more fearful for all of us. And so I thought maybe what we need is culture, uh, culture to restore to death and dying its meaning. There's a beautiful quotation by the German philosopher Robert Speyman, who said that significance is meaning toughened by the consciousness of finitude. Significance is meaning toughened by the consciousness of finitude. I think that is such an excellent distillation of why I, as a pro-life 
young person want to think about death and dying and to contend with it so much because it toughens the meaningfulness of life. To realize the shortness of this life is to receive its preciousness and to safeguard its value. And so that's why I think it all really comes together. And so when I realized this, the problem around a kind of existential poverty or existential deprival concerning how we um, engage with the topic of death and the experience of death more fundamentally, I decided to make a New Year's resolution. And so on January 1st, 2021, I made a resolution to blog about death and dying every single day for one year in a way that was edifying and aspirational and humanizing. I came to realize pretty early on that death is not always beautiful. Death is not always positive or anything like this. Death is grievous. It's real. It's tragic. It's agonizing. And in the light of faith, death is ultimately overcome. This changes everything. To see it rightly and to see it um, in all its in all its reality, the reality that gives significance and preciousness to life, and the reality that gives us hope and longing for what is to come. So I started this blog. And I was a bit nervous to start right at the beginning. I remember day one and day two and day three thinking, what have I committed to? Blogging every single day about death. On the fourth day, it was hard to come up with a topic. And I thought, oh, I'm in way over my head, especially because it was still COVID time. And I had to basically come up with new content every day in conversation with whoever I managed to see on a walk or whatever I happen to see on social media or in the news. And so it proved quite challenging. But the more I got into the habit of doing it, the more it became my favorite part of every day and something that I really, really looked forward to. What were some of the most impactful stories from your daily blog about death? Well, without a doubt, what people enjoyed the most were the interviews. Whenever I could do like a long form interview with someone, people really, really liked that. And Sometimes people came to me with the stories. Eventually, I had a part of the website where people could submit tips for their stories. Someone reached out to me and told me about a fascinating initiative that uh, she had founded called the Living Wish Foundation. And the Living Wish Foundation grants wishes to palliative care patients, palliative care of all ages, not only very elderly, but there can be people of all ages with um, uh, life-threatening illnesses who may be receiving palliative care to manage their pain, to improve their quality of life. And these are the people who believe that there's always something more that you can do, no matter what. There's always a way to make someone more comfortable or to give them uh, some affection and some, some joy. And so that's what the Living Wish Foundation did. Basically, they realized that sometimes it's very complicated to grant the wish of a dying patient because... For example, maybe someone really just wants to go to the beach one last time with their loved ones. But how do you transport the person safely simply to go to the beach? Well, you actually need a proper vehicle for that and insurance and these kinds of things. So the foundation was partly established to provide this. 
Or maybe someone's wish is to have a kind of ice cream that they, they stopped manufacturing this flavor and then the Living Wish Foundation would recreate the ice cream flavor that brought an elderly gentleman back to the times when he shared this ice cream with his wife who had since passed away. Beautiful, simple requests. And I think what people were touched by is the creativity and especially the nature of the requests that people who are dying don't ask for often very extravagant things, but to simply uh, cherish a memory and to be with loved ones, to have Chinese food with their children, to gather their grandkids for the day at the beach. And so we can see so much how the Living Wish Foundation, through uh, finding ways to bring joy to those who are nearing the end of the life, these people are all transformed. The whole community, the extended family, everyone is changed by this experience and for the better. And I thought, wow, what an antidote to a euthanasia culture that stifles and cuts short all so many possibilities for more life, more experiences. We don't, as pro-lifers, believe in prolonging life uh, indefinitely and forever. And like we receive death when it comes naturally. And at the same time, we don't we don't rush it because you never know what you might miss. There's always more to the story. And don't you want to see how it turns out? That's how the Living Wish Foundation sees it. And so that was a very loved blog post. Another one uh, that I found quite uh, worthwhile was about Yazidi refugees in Canada needing and wanting their own cemetery. So Yazidis who fled the persecution and genocide by ISIS, a few, of, a few thousand Yazidis came to Canada. And of course, they have extremely complex trauma. I've met Yazidi uh, refugees who lost dozens of family members. And they come to Canada and have so many challenges in front of them, so much trauma to deal with. And then sometimes a family member will pass away in Canada. And initially, I was hearing stories of them repatriating bodies to Iraq, which is very expensive and also um, very complicated emotionally, logistically. And so the Yazidi advocates to whom I was speaking were saying, we really need our own burial grounds because we have some distinct customs and traditions and we would like our own section of a cemetery so that we can bury our uh, our community in a common cemetery. And I was like, wow, this is so interesting and not something that we might necessarily think about when receiving a new minority community uh, to Canada. And that part of receiving refugees and helping them establish a country as their new home is making sure that they'll be able to bury their loved ones uh, reverently and to have a space to which they can return. Uh, yeah, so oh, that was another one. There are so many though. There were blogs about culture. There were, there, there were blogs about uh, like, there were 365 of them. So I won't, I won't enumerate all of them, but I will say that whenever I needed a quick story, I would just ask someone, could you tell me about a death in your family? It might sound like a very shocking question to ask conversationally, but every time I asked that, people had a story to tell because it's pretty ubiquitous. It's pretty certain that someone has a story. 
And then people felt so free to finally be able to speak. They would often show me a photo of the loved one who had died, and they felt like they had permission to finally grieve in a conversational way, to tell the story, to deepen their connection. In a sense, the person continues to exist through memory. And another thing that they would share with me is after someone would tell me their story and they knew that I was writing the blog and that I would do something with it and I was respectful and sometimes anonymized posts when appropriate and things like this. But in any case, when I showed the person the blog post or I sent them a link, having just put it together, they would always marvel and say, wow, I didn't know I had such a story. And this really touched me because maybe it's rare that we take the time to really make meaning out of these experiences. And then we can only do that in conversation and in community. So I was really touched whenever people thought, okay, now I have a story. Now this means something. That's the power of talking about death with naturalness, with acceptance, bearing the tragedy and the agony of it, but in a way that says you're not alone and this person is not forgotten. That's so true, because just as you were saying that, thoughts of about four or five people that I know who have all died just popped into my head of people who died heroically or people who died tragically but left such an impact on the community. And even just thinking about it is kind of healing. You're like, yeah, that person Mm. had this great impact on others. And I can see how talking about it would be really healing for people and being able to immortalize them in a sense in the memories of others. Um, Do you have a story that comes to mind? I do, actually. I had a professor in college who battled cancer. He had a cancer that you were only supposed to be able to, like, get three times. Like, he told us uh, my freshman year, like, three strikes and you're out. Once you get it your third time, you're going to die from it. And he actually ended up fighting it off three times and died his fourth or fifth round with it. But he was just one of the most powerful people that I knew. And just he always – he was – teaching up until he died he fought he just kept teaching and serving his students and putting others before him his entire like time that he was fighting off cancer and he was so dynamic he loved life he loved he just he had so much energy and he didn't go around feeling sorry for himself and feeling sorry for people around him he just he battled it like a hero and he also just impacted the lives of me and all my classmates and like everyone who ever had him as a teacher and it was, he was one of those people that you could tell his vocation was teaching. And then despite the fact that he had cancer, he just kept pursuing, like serving those and serving his community around him. And yeah, anyone who I went to school with would tell you he was an incredible person. It just, he just, his funeral was packed. It was, yeah, he was probably one of the most incredible people I knew. And how do you think your experience of him changed you? That's a good question. <laughs> I think that he just showed me how to like that even if you're confronting death constantly for like I think it was about 10 years you can just keep like it's so important to just love life. He loved life so much and the fact that you could love life and embrace life despite facing death and knowing that you could die or that death was in your new future so many times throughout the years. I think just his, he just like, he tackled life head on. 
Um, and actually, that kind of jumps into my next question, which I guess I kind of was touching on. But I was going to ask, how do you think keeping death constantly before you changes your life? And that's I know that's something that he did. And that's kind of what makes me want to ask that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think uh, to jump off of that, that story, and thank you for sharing it, is the sense of loving life. And uh, that's something I certainly find in the stories of those who face tremendous suffering, face ordinary suffering, uh, all, all kinds of human experiences that there's, um, uh, for example, the, the earthquake that just happened in Turkey and Syria, and we're seeing images of babies who survived under rubble for, for days. We're seeing the rescue efforts. We're seeing so much zeal for life. And there is an instinct for life. And we can lose sight of it in the midst of the despair and tough times we face. I'm sure everyone listening to this has had a time of um, being very challenged and struggling and suffering. And so it helps now and again to take perspective and to see that will to live in others and how much we need each other to encourage each other to alternate when someone is down to pull them up and then when we're down to have someone to pull us up when someone is suffering to say um that i'm not going to abandon you and i will fight for you because that that's transformative so yeah i would say that in all my experience especially studying the holocaust and spending time in the middle east these experiences gave me a great sensitivity for example i um, sometimes when I travel in the Middle East and I explain what's happening with euthanasia in Canada, it's unfathomable. The people I meet tell me, we are doing everything we can to try and live. How can people in your country be doing everything they can to try and die? It's so confusing and perplexing. And I think it is a little bit of a sign of the general comfort and ease that we have in uh, societies where euthanasia is becoming more popular. I saw a tweet the other day where someone who uses a wheelchair said that he was in the pharmacy and a man came over to him and said, I couldn't do what you do. And the man was simply shopping at the pharmacy. And so he, he wasn't really sure what was meant by that. And he said, what do you mean? And he said, I'd rather die than be in a wheelchair. And the man in the wheelchair was completely shocked because this is his daily life. He loves his life. And he found that such an ableist, uh, derogatory comment as it, as it clearly is. And this is what's among many things so troubling with euthanasia. If anyone purports that this or that is an occasion to justify prematurely ending a life, then everyone else who suffers with that condition is crazy for persisting in their life. Uh, and, and I really see this. So um, we always have to address the suffering. And we know that what we are doing is right or wrong if the person and their own health and their own good is at the center of the story. Uh, but unfortunately, what we're seeing in Canada is far from being voluntary. There's so much coercion with respect to euthanasia. People have attested to 
being tempted to ask for euthanasia on the basis of disability, uh, lack of ability to get supports, wait times to see a psychiatrist, wait times to get a, a wheelchair, um, lack of proper access to healthcare specialists, fear of homelessness or eviction, um, lack of positive family relationships on which they can count. There, there are so many reasons. And this is why it's, it's desperate that we provide suicide prevention to everyone and not have a two-track society where some people are considered worthy of suicide prevention and others are considered worthy of suicide assistance. This is completely wrong. Everyone, everyone deserves to have someone fight for them, most especially in the times when they cannot fight for themselves. That's why a friend of mine uh, who became an amazing advocate in speaking out against the expansion of euthanasia on the basis of mental illness. She begs the politicians saying, in two years, in four years, someone might thank you for making it easier for them to die. But that's the problem because, uh, or, or someone might thank you, someone might say thank you for making it easier for that person to die. But in two years or two, four years, that same person would not thank you because uh, they'd have that perspective of hindsight and see uh, that they were able to get through that bout of depression. And so she tells the politicians, I'm the future version of myself who survived to tell you this. And that when someone is fighting on all fronts, she says, then that's when I need someone to be my advocate because I'm already fighting. I can't be my own advocate in those moments. So this topic is really a matter of of life, of community, of needing one another. Uh, we are not meant to be purely autonomous. And this is another issue that comes up a lot with, with euthanasia in Canada. There was an article titled, A Complicated Grief, because when loved ones do not even know that their family member has requested euthanasia, the trauma and the shock of those premature deaths is devastating and wreaks total havoc in people's lives. And so it all comes back to, can we die in such a way as your professor did, in a way that is a witness to all the students, to all the colleagues, that yes, death is sad and grievous and not, um, not easy for us, but ultimately we have a hope that death will be defeated and it's not defeated by us. It's defeated and overcome by God. Uh, ultimately, that's the victory and that's the hope to which we look. So those are, those are some thoughts that come to mind. Yeah, thank you for that. It's beautiful. Do you have any suggestions for our listeners of how they can help cultivate that culture where death is not something to be feared, but not something to be embraced? Like where death is accepted as the natural end of life before eternal life, but again, not something that you should be pursuing, but not something that you should be running away from. Like, how do you, how do we build that culture and what practical things can they do? It's a great question. I think creating the openness to have conversations. When someone says that someone has passed away, don't move on so quickly. Ask questions. 
sometimes we presume that no one wants to talk about it, but in fact, it can be very painful to not talk about it. And it can be very therapeutic and cathartic to talk about it. And there's something very affirming of the loved one and of the one who is mourned to be brought up in conversation continually, at least remembered. I remember the other day I was chatting with someone who reminded me about how in the rite for Christian funerals, it says that with death, life is not ended, but changed. And yes, there's a sort of eschatological dimension to that. With death, life is not ended, but changed. But there's also an imminent aspect to it. Our lives are changed by the deaths of those we know. And they're changed, um, but not ended. The relationship is not ended. With my brother Brandon, the relationship is not ended. He continues to affect the tenor and dynamism of my family life. He continues to be a part of our family life and to spur me on even in certain ways by the fact that he existed. That's powerful. And I also, in the course of Holocaust education, uh, was particularly reflecting on how devastating as it is that there are so many victims the moral heroism of some victims means that they will survive longer than even some of the survivors who live into the 21st century. And I marvel at this, but when I think of the stories of saints and heroes and martyrs and righteous persons who, in a sense, by their heroism, outlast and outlive their tormentors. It shows the triumph of life and love. Um, it reminds me of, of some Jews who were dancing in a concentration camp. They were being at first taunted uh, by the Nazis, but then they started singing, we will outlive them, outlive them, outlive them. We will outlive them, our father in heaven. And they had changed the words to whatever song the Nazis had made them sing. And they started singing this, we will outlive them, we will outlive them and dancing almost frantically in a frenzy. And they did. They outlived them because now I'm telling you this story. Wow. That, that's a really powerful, really powerful image and really powerful idea. And I think there's something so grace-filled with accepting death as, like, as a Christian, knowing that it's like, like there's a reason for it, that it's been defeated, and that you can die beautifully. That's just, it's such a idea that is foreign to today's society where they think death is an escape or they think death is to be avoided at all costs and that accepting death and accepting suffering, but knowing that there's more. But yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really interesting conversation that I'm really, really glad that we have get to have. Thank you so much for having me. And to all of our listeners, um, please remember to like, hit that subscribe button, share with your friends. And if you're listening on our audio platforms, please Again, follow, share with your friends. Um, thank you for joining us for this conversation today. Um, and to all of our listeners, again, just keep on living the culture of life. Thank you and God bless. <laughs>